Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. Hello, I'm your host, John Plotz, and specifically welcome now to our summer series on the Brahmin left, past, present, and future. Um, I think today we might call this the series of the Brahmin left and perhaps the Tea Party right, since we're interested not just in the movement of educated upper middle class people towards traditional left parties like the Democrats, but also in the movement of working class and less educated citizens towards the right and the Republican Party. And so we can really imagine no better guest for that aspect of this series than the renowned sociologist Arlie Hochschild. Uh, hello, Arlie. Hey. Hi. Um, it's great to have you. So my co-host for this third of our Brahmin Left series is Adana Usmani, a sociologist at Harvard, who you've previously heard talking about mass incarceration in episode 44, and then in episode 51's conversation with Thomas Piketty himself. So hi, Adana. Hi, John. Hi, Arlie. So it was that conversation with Piketty, in fact, that inspired this series because Piketty has in recent years analyzed ways in which European and American left-wing parties have increasingly drawn their support from an educated non-working class political base. So today is the last of three conversations and previous ones were with the American historian, Matt Karp and expert on European populism, Jan Werner Muller, in which we think with and around that Piketty claim that there's been a quote, class de-alignment that leaves many highly educated folks, so-called PMC, serving as a new core of left parties. So if Piketty's facts and figures are right, how do we understand that shift? Is it a tribute to effective strategies among right-wing parties, a sign of the decoupling of left political platforms from the material interests of the poor and working class, or some other kind of ominous or potentially reversible realignment in the structure of representative politics generally. Um, well, when it comes to thinking about this decoupling or the possibility of a post-material politics, our thoughts turned naturally to a pivotal 2016 book that pointed out some frequently overlooked currents in how Americans had shifted their form of political affiliation and the sorts of emotional investment that accompanied that affiliation. So, um, uh, Arlie Hochschild's books, um, at least 10 by my count, and I'm sure I've left some out, Arlie, along with countless articles, uh, range from her 1973, The Unexpected Community, and 1983's The Managed Heart, to um, the 2012 wonderful The Outsourced Self, Intimate Life in the Market. And to top it all off, she's also a distinguished uh, professor, I guess, Professor Emerita now at UC Berkeley. Still, all of her previous honors notwithstanding, Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right was a thunderclap of a book, way beyond the traditional markers of success for academic sociology. This was not simply because of its timeliness as members of the Brahmin left woke up to the countercurrent that swept other voters firmly into the Republican camp, but also because um, the voices in it rang so true and testified so sincerely to the feelings and the sort of deep story understanding that accompanied that movement. So um, Arlie, again, thank you so much for coming on and we really look forward to this conversation. And Adonar, do you wanna just sort of kick it off with an opening question? Sure, 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 absolutely. Yeah, thanks Arlie, it was, it's, it's really exciting to get to speak to you about this. Uh, I thought that the place to start would be kind of with the, the widest lens to begin with, uh, sketch of the argument of strangers in their own land for people who haven't read it. 
I spent five years um, getting to know uh, people in um, what turns out to be one of the heartland of uh, not only the Tea Party, leaders in the Tea Party, but uh, uh, Donald Trump enthusiasts. So this is in Louisiana, uh, <clears throat> which is the, not just the South, uh, which generally is very red, region, but the super south. And um, not only that, but I was focusing on a region uh, that is organized around the petrochemical uh, industry. And I was interviewing and getting to know people who uh, were involved in that industry, who were white, who were older, uh, who many were uh, extremely religious. And um, so that's uh, about a hundred of them, but I focus in, I ask where they were born, what school they went to, we went to the schoolhouse, you know, what row did you sit in, uh, did you like school, uh, who was your favorite teacher, um, where are your kin buried, uh, were any of them in the Civil War, uh, no, because you're Cajuns and you were in the swampland avoiding, you were, uh, and okay, so in the course of the, this journey, um, I uh, heard a lot, and I uh, the act of emotional labor for me as a as a research would turn my own alarm system off. Really, just taking what I'm hearing, uh, permit myself to get very curious and interested in what I was hearing. What that added up to was. Um, not just a bunch of opinions, but um, a, a sense of uh, the deepest feelings that the people I came to know felt. And what I did was make up a story, metaphors, like a dream, at, that I felt expressed those. And then I went back to them. What do you think? Is this, would you change it? Is there a different one? Is it? really speak to you or just a little bit. And I found out it really spoke to them. People said, you've read my mind. Um, you're, uh, I live your metaphor. And some people would correct it. But here was the deep story then. Imagine yourself, you're um, a 55-year-old white man and you're waiting in line. Your feet are... Uh, forward and you're facing as in a pilgrimage the american dream it's at the top of the hill uh, and you're not at the back of the line you're not at the front you feel you're somewhere in the middle i'd love your thoughts about the genealogy from a class-based model of so political parties like if we think about the democrats traditionally as a party of the working class versus the Republicans as a party, let's say, of bankers or property owners. That's so different from the deep story you're telling here, like class, you know, I didn't even, you know, the, cla the word class doesn't even enter into the, to oh, that deep story, right. right? So can I, what are your thoughts about that? Is, the, is, is it sort of more like, oh, the whole conception of class is gone? Or do you see a sort of genealogical transformation where the logic of class-based politics is still here, but, you know, the, the markers have changed? You know, is, is it a completely brave new world or can we see what the, what the connection is? Here's, here's what makes sense to me. 
Um, and I would give primacy to, to therefore, uh, a story that begins like this. Um, in the 1970s, uh, we saw the beginning of uh, a real thrust toward uh, capital flight, basically globalization, so that um, companies said, uh, as William Grader argues in One World, um, ready or not, that it uh, untied its feet uh, to the United States and sought cheaper labor pools uh, in, uh, around the world. And it um, therefore invested elsewhere, divested from, from uh, American workers so that the 1950s, 60s deal of, um, you know, uh, Henry Ford, look, I'll give you a well-paid job because I want you to have the money uh, to buy what I have to, and we other capitalists have to, have to sell. Um, our interests are aligned in this regard. That, um, the flight of capital is a big, big deal. And I attach a series of social logics to that fact. So we're looking at intended consequences and unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. And um, the first consequence is um, that capitalism is a, is a bunch of companies that compete with each other. And if you're moving offshore to cheaper label, labor in, 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 from the north to the south of the US, from uh, the South to Mexico, from Mexico to China. If, if one company is doing it, the other has to, to stay competitive. So um, it's a system and within it, there's built in competition. So it has a momentum of that. But the flight of capital has had, has weakened some institutions and strengthened others. So we're, uh, we're talking about primary resulting effects of that flight and uh, who it's weakened. And this has been argued by um, uh, Bob Kuttner in uh, uh, Everything for Sale, which is a wonderful book. Um, what it's weakened are the two institutions that used to be a break on capitalism. One, it's labor unions, totally undercut. And the other is the federal government itself. It lost power too. So the two breaks on capitalism are, are weakened. They haven't gone away, but they're weakened. And that sets off a chain of, of secondary effects, both for the government and for labor unions. The whole story you're telling here is a story of people creating ideological responses to these big structural shifts. And that really ties into this is, I won't say it's a fight that Adana and I have been having, but a discussion we've been having about the relationship between those mental gymnastics and the kind of structural material changes that we see, you know, that you're describing the accumulation of wealth, the weakening of the unions. And I guess a way to phrase this is the deep story you're telling in your book 
is do you see it as mainly post facto mental gymnastics? In other words, this is the story that people have to tell themselves to account for a structure that willy nilly is doing this to them? Or is the mental gymnastics itself also an agent of change? <laughs> like, do, do the ideas that people have about what's happening to them themselves produce economic and material impacts? Or do they just register the fact that those things are happening willy-nilly to people? Right, well, let me uh, add uh, a, a point to uh, our understanding of emotional gymnastics. Yeah. Uh, and that is that actually uh, you don't have to do a lot in order to understand enthusiasm for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, I talked to a man who said, Donald Trump's coming to town this before the primary rally in 2020. And he's uh, uh, so exciting. He's lightning in a jar, lightning <laughs> in a jar. I said, well, tell me about that. What, what, God, how does that, uh, why? And his first answer was not mental gymnastics. His first answer was very uh, pragmatic. He said, he's the only one of the two parties, all the candidates that's trying to bring, trying to fulfill my wish and his wish was having those good old blue collar jobs brought back to American soil. That made complete sense to him. That's the again, great again. It's a wish, it's a powerful wish. What would it have taken for the history of the last 30, 40 years to have unfolded differently in your view, Arlie? So there's, cause there's one version of the argument which is the, let's call it the more structural version of the argument, which is suggesting that as you're, as you so masterfully outlined, there are these broad changes in the nature of American capitalism, which kind of make it rational for someone in the middle of the line to believe the things that they believe and to want the things that they want. But conceivably, I hope we'd have to think we, we it, it could have been possible, maybe, and certainly Piketty believes this, for someone to come along and tell an alternative deep story about the changes in American capitalism, which might be similar to the kinds of things that you were outlining, and point the finger not at the people who are cutting in line, but point the finger at the fat cats who are taking enormous shares of the GDP and building McMansions and things like this. And so I, I feel like one of the questions here has to be, where was that alternative deep story and why wasn't it successful? And maybe to take us to the left, why does it seem to be most successful with those people who are college educated and coastal residents rather than the people that you spoke to? What, what is, why is our deep story such a failure? I think one of the answers that you potentially might give is the answer that was in your narrative, which was that ultimately 
it is unions which were responsible for this alternative deep story and these unions no longer exist. But now we live in a world without unions. What, what can be done to traffic a different kind of deep story? Why isn't our deep story more compelling, I guess, is, is the kind of question. Like, it could, is, there, is there a universe in which this could have gone differently, in which we told a different deep story, or were we always doomed to live these 30 years? Right. Wonderful question. I just love this line of questioning. <laughs> uh, and uh, they're, they're not deep stories, they're deep questions. <laughs> and um, I, have, I have two things come to mind about uh, to answer how it could have gone differently. One is uh, a kind of a critique, and here I would go back uh, to the idea that uh, the left itself has uh, become a little detached from the blue collar class, that is the, the, the Democratic Party. And here we see with uh, Thomas Frank, for example, uh, listen, liberal, who's kind of screed and kind of angry. Look, you guys have been conservative. Clinton's a Democrat, but he opened the doors to climate change. He locked down uh, uh, the black working class male. He, he was conservative. So in a way, the party itself uh, became Brahmin and the left uh, was a little bit hung out to dry as a movement. So, um, so that in a way the Democratic Party sold the blue collar class out. It failed, it really failed. It became, uh, you know, there were Democratic lobbyists who rolled from their job uh, as uh, representatives into lucrative industry jobs. And um, where were their interests? Were they representing the people? No, in fact. Are the, can I just jump in with a footnote there? This is, I, would, I really apologize for interrupting your flow, but just the footnote would be that you can see exactly the same process with Tony Blair and the labor government, exactly analogous to Clinton. and that parallel seems important in terms of thinking about the evidence because those are two pretty different socioeconomic climates, but the pattern of a theoretically left party that actually veered towards the center and arguably governed right repeats itself in both of these big economies. So that's- And, and, yeah. and you know, yeah. to make that point even more forcefully, it's, it's kind of, at least in Piketty's view, the story of the entire advanced capitalist world. It's the story of what happened to social democracy, social democratic parties in Europe as well, right? Which to me is only more depressing. <laughs> I, I was right. hoping, I was I hoping the, the second point you were going to make, Arlie, was going to give us, um, so it's partly what the Democrats did, you were saying, but then is there a source also for maybe more optimism or more hope here? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, sure. I, I see um, uh, some possibility for uh, substituting for unions. In other words, mm. um, uh, there, I see two other possibilities. One is um, getting uh, a, a political movement up and 
and of people who are uh, in alliance with locally based uh, blue collar workers. Do you see hope elsewhere in the world for that kind of strategy that you're describing that, that yeah. could potentially work in America as well? Yeah. Well, I don't have an answer to that. Yeah. Um, I've been pretty limited on, on this thing, but, um, yeah. but it's a great question to ask. You know, let's keep it there. But um, going back to the US, um, a, uh, <clears throat> an interesting thing happened to me. The telephone rang and I, at the other end was a Democratic congressman uh, named Ro Khanna, uh, California. He represents mm -hmm. Silicon Valley. And he says, uh, look, half my constituencies are immigrants from other, other uh, you know, other countries. Uh, I represent Facebook and uh, uh, Microsoft, a lot of, um, Silicon Valley. And he said, um, but I made an alliance uh, with Hal Rogers of Paintville, Kentucky. They've got all these unemployed uh, coal miners and uh, they, uh, they don't have another job. They're all voting Republican. And me, I'm Democrat over here. We've got jobs, but we outsource them to Bangalore. Why don't we outsource them to Paintsville? Mm. And Hal Rogers said, yeah, Silicon Holler. Let <laughs> I actually wrote an op-ed for the Times on this experiment and mm. went to look at the coding training program, which is in Louisville, and interviewed uh, some of the transformed lives of blue-collar desperate lives of people whose lives have been completely transformed mm -hmm. of this internal outsourcing. So that is something that could be um, built up, uh, that could be a part of a strategy uh, of a redirection of, um, of this whole thing of, uh, investing and digesting, invest more. Well, I was thinking about, as you were describing the government and the unions as the two sectors that have suffered the most, I was wondering about this new push towards a global minimum tax as potentially being something that can boost both of those sectors since yes. unions need people to be doing jobs domestically in order to have a base to well but i i think i mean not to sound a dour note i think here though we run into the problem that i think piketty runs into as well because piketty's book is also full of these ambitious social democratic global proposals the trouble is i think if arlie we take your narrative to be correct which i think i was very compelled by about the structural transformations of american capitalism there's a problem of power, I think, lurking in the background, which is how do you force companies which are so powerful, as your book demonstrates, as you were saying, how do you force companies without any kind of social force like unions or something like this? How do you force them to bend to the vision of a social democratic utopia, one in which they'd be paying higher taxes and redistributing? I just think you can't 
so many of these proposals I worry try and try to do an end run around the big problem of power, which makes me a little not pessimistic, but just a little, you know, um, thinking that maybe we need to, to, maybe there's a step that we're missing, which is first we have to think about, before we think about proposals, I think we also need to think about how are we going to build up the kind of social force, the kind of counter power that can allow us to push these sorts of policies. Chicken, right. meat, egg. <laughs> Chicken, meat, <laughs> egg. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it, Excellent point, excellent stone in the road uh, <laughs> we need to focus on. But power uh, also uh, goes with a search for legitimacy. And I think uh, you can erode power by eroding mm -hmm. the legitimacy of it. Can I just say, I really appreciate you using the word legitimacy in that context. I think that's a word that Adana and I haven't used, and we need to think it through more because it's both speaks to the kind of uh, empathetic and emotional orientation that is people have to feel buy-in, but it has a kind of structural meaning too. Like it, you, you have legitimacy as a party when you speak to or for your constituents, but you also have to have like... Uh, you also have to connect to them as well. And I think legitimacy speaks to that way that you're both solving structural and material questions and you're also figuring out what is the common language we have. So. The power of Donald Trump is centrally the stealing of legitimacy. Mm. I mean, legitimacy isn't a minor afterthought here. Yeah, That is his power. That is, yeah. he, he's taken it to the grassroots. You've lost, you guys. Hillary is just talking about, oh, the American dream, you can get there, just work hard. No, she's wrong. You've lost something. Mm. Something's been stolen. That's yeah. the paradigm. You know? mm. And the different narratives based on lost and stealing. He has won legitimacy. Now, he doesn't have power, but he yeah. does have legitimacy. And yeah. that is lightning in a jar. Mm -hmm. So we're wrong to think, oh, that's the same thing. Oh, that's soft cultural stuff. <laughs> well, no, you know, that, that's not true at all. Yeah. Hugely powerful in just this way. Yeah. I really hear that. But then the question might become, can you make the claim of illegitimacy, which is fundamentally what he founds his power on, the basis of your legitimacy? Like, in other words, yes. is that a sustainable kind of legitimacy i worry honestly yeah. Yeah. i think uh it, we're in a fight really it's it's very it's it's uh i don't think he's gonna fade uh you know i don't think he's gonna fade he and he he's a charismatic leader if we read max Faber and the characteristics of charismatic you, you have you are the source of all knowledge yourself. It's mm -hmm. one, two, three, four, all the characteristics we see in Trump. And if it weren't him, another, we now know the, the lightning are, yeah. so it is, that lightning has to do with emotional, here's where the sociology of emotions comes in. And mm. it's fundamental to the building or dismantling of legitimacy which is not incidental to power. So if we think of power as uh, in some denuded way, um, 
we're barking up the wrong tree. This mm. is, I think, what we have to understand, theorize, focus on, get, is how you get somebody's emotions. That's why I was, you know, and am still now, we're kind of uh, trying to um, look at that lightning in the job because it he holds the Republican vote. That's power, right? Yeah. So legitimacy and power are are not separable. And that's what's holding all these Republicans to the votes they are taking. I just wanted to to ask you what you thought about the possibility that the when you say that we're in a fight and we need, in some ways, I think to go back to the terms of your argument, what you're saying we need is a alternative, compelling, deep story to tell that speaks to people's emotions. And but I wonder whether you know. So to 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 take it to the to to the efforts that you were describing to link high schoolers from different areas and um, to really break down the empathy wall in the terms of your argument. I wonder whether what is maybe missing but could easily be added is a deep story. And maybe this is the version of the, the liberal deep story that you were saying that we work with. But I wonder whether, you know, if we just think of the three, if we think of the characters of the deep story that the, that the right tells, which is the people who've been waiting in line, the line cutters, the federal government, um, you know, what it seems to me is easy to add to that deep story and maybe render in kind of a left way is to say, yes, you have been waiting in line for a long time. And yes, you are competing with certain people who are also working class, not doing very well themselves for the crumbs of the American dream. But there is this fraction of elites who are making off incredibly well, as you were saying yourself over the last 30, 40 years. Um, and so maybe what, you know, maybe it's a case of trying to unite those two characters against someone else. Maybe that's where the emotion and the anger can come from. Because I just worry you can't have a deep story without a certain enemy or enemy. a certain kind of anger or something. A focus. A focus, a focus. A focus of your, yeah, a focus of your, I mean, and, and I was wondering whether you've tried that kind of deep story with your with your interlocutors, with the people that you interviewed and, and whether, whether with any success. <laughs> I haven't, no. But I tell you what, uh, there are many clues that uh, you're really right. Uh, and one in this I'm gonna have to get off to, but um, one is that I often heard when about Bernie Sanders, oh, Bernie Sanders, He's a socialist and we're not socialists. And, uh, but Uncle Bernie, <laughs> Uncle Bernie, and uh, they love him. Yeah. So why do they love him? There is a legitimacy to him. There is an honor to him. They, okay, he's, he's not speaking. He doesn't have all the the tunes on the piano of, of this ideological piano that can be heard by him, but he has major chords. Mm. 
major chords. They're already there, but they're untapped mm. by the Brahmins, but <laughs> there by Bernie Sanders himself. So I, I'm hopeful. Yeah. Well, I like that. I like that answer. Yeah. I love that metaphor of the piano. Wow. Yeah. Well, so on that musical metaphor, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll just say um, uh, that thank you so much, Charlie. This is great. Yeah, what a pleasure. Really they yeah. great questions. I love the project. Yeah, that's great. And I'm just going to say real quick that um, recall this book is sponsored by Brandeis and the Mandel Humanity Center. Sound editing by Naomi Cohen, website design and social media by Miranda Puri of the English Department. Adana and I are really eager to hear your comments, criticisms, and thoughts on today's discussion and on the notion of the Brahmin left generally. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with a wrap-up episode where we discuss uh, all three of our conversations. So please uh, write a review or rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed today's show, please check out our earlier Brahmin left conversations with Matt Karp and Jan Werner Muller. Uh, you might also check out our conversation with David Cunningham on white suprematism and the FBI and our conversation with Piketty himself on proprietarian ideologies. So from all of us here at Recall This Book, thank you so much, Arlie, and thank you all for listening.